0: about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360, and we have an action-packed episode for you today with all the court's been doing. Um, and joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large and co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie?
1: Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Pretty good. Just trying to, I think, keep track of everything coming out of the court this week. Um, as you said, a lot of stuff happening. i uh, There were like six opinions. We're going to get into a few in a minute, but the court was just like covering all sorts of ground patent, trademark, immigration, environmental. Um, They also on Monday granted a pretty interesting case on data privacy um, that I am now officially have on my radar uh, for, for the future. Um, It's a bit of a wild story involving a a crooked police officer and, and, but it has some pretty important digital privacy implications.
0: So can you kind of set up the facts of this case for us? Because so oftentimes the facts of these Supreme Court cases are kind of boring, but the the legal questions are like very interesting. In this case, I would say it's both, right? It's like a pretty wild fact pattern as you alluded to.
1: Yes, so Van Buren versus U.S. Um, it involves a Georgia, poli- a former Georgia police officer named Nathan Van Buren, um, and he was convicted of breaching the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So this is like the big act for you know, digital crime, um, and it's been accused by some for being too broad. But okay, so fact pattern: Van Buren, former Georgia police officer, was approached by a man to have and asked to look up. Uh, a license plate number for who uh van buren thought was an exotic dancer's license plate number uh in the state's database so he took six thousand dollars and he's like yeah sure i'll run the plate and find you information
0: he was a little low on cash is my understanding and so he was you know yeah willing well, to do some things that maybe were <laughs> not in his best interest in the end
1: exactly and so that man ended up being an undercover fbi agent um Oof, and not good it seems Van Buren was like the target of this FBI sting at, at the time, um, but he is pushing back against the the charges that he's had on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. He basically says that this what arguably inappropriate use of the d- database he had access to isn't illegal, though that what he did.
0: Okay, so he says that he. Was fully within his rights, I guess, or maybe just the prosecution was overzealous and going after him, yeah, for for um, I guess misappropriating the state's database in this way. Um, so, uh, tell me about these d- digital privacy implications a little bit that we might see when the case comes up for oral argument. I guess sometime in the fall or maybe later.
1: Yeah. So this is a, a big chance for the court basically to resolve a circuit split that's been happening among appeals courts um, as to whether or not an employee or anyone else authorized to access a computer um, can face criminal or civil liability for abusing that authorization uh, for improper uses such as these.
0: That's really interesting. Okay. I guess we'll have uh, more details on that as that um, case, you know, it goes up on the briefs and eventually before the court next term. Uh, but in the meantime, Natalie, you mentioned that it was a pretty busy week. There were six opinions, um, including three that came out today on Thursday. Um, so we wanted to talk about one of those cases um, County of Maui, Hawaii versus the Hawaii Wildlife Fund. Uh, this is perhaps its biggest environmental case of the, of the term because it involves the question of when a polluter needs to obtain a permit um, under the Clean Water Act. So the, the facts of this case are um, that you know environmental groups are suing to force the county of Maui to obtain a federal permit under the Clean Water Act for a sewage treatment plant that, um, by all accounts, dumps millions of gallons of water or excuse me, millions of gallons of sewage into the groundwater beneath it um, each day, pretty much most of which ends up in the Pacific Ocean nearby. So they say that um, the Clean Water Act covers these discharges of pollution. However, the county of Maui actually claims that the Clean Water Act only covers direct discharges into navigable waterways. So they say that because it injects the sewage into the groundwater beneath it, that that's not a navigable waterway, and so they are not subject to you know the liability. So the Supreme Court said on Thursday that they did not agree with the county that there's this kind of loophole for pollution that goes into, say, groundwater as opposed to directly into you know the ocean, for instance. Um, basically, Justice Breyer writes for the majority. Um, and he says that if it's a functional equivalent of a direct discharge, then that still requires um, the, the permitting process that the, the the CWA, the Clean Water Act, demands. Um, however, it's not a complete victory for the um, environmental groups that are challenging the county of Maui here um, because the Justice Breyer, in his majority opinion, says that the Ninth Circuit was pretty overly broad in ruling for the environmental challengers here. They said... He said that the test that they had adopted, where any pollution that was fairly traceable in a navigable water to a pollution source, that w- that covered too much ground. Um, so he wanted to really focus on this functional equivalent um, test. Uh, obviously, the dissent uh, written by Justice uh, Sam Alito uh, disagreed, and he says that there, you know this is not workable. It's going to be subject to you know manipulation, etc. Um, he was joined by. Uh, a Thomas and Gorsuch in that dissent. But I think notably, uh, Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Chief Justice John Roberts Jr., uh, they both joined uh, the you know so-called liberal justice in the majority here to kind of rule in this middle ground, which I think on the whole can be interpreted as a win for the environmental challengers here.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, back in November when we were first talking about this case, uh, Justice Salito, who, as you noted, did continue to dissent um with the opinions today uh you know he was very concerned about the idea that a homeowner with like a septic tank leading leaking into the groundwater um you know could be found in violation of the clean water act so um while he still dissents i, I do feel like the majority opinion does try to go a little bit closer towards his side in terms of, you know, finding a middle ground, um, you know, putting this kind of time and distance test, um, right. you know, where if if it's a pipe that's like a few feet away and it's like, as you said, a functional discharge, that's a clear violation, but it gives the courts, um, you know, discretion to consider other sources and other leaks that might be much further away, say 50 miles, something like that, so... I, I thought it was an interesting way to go about trying to find that compromise um, f- for for the environmentalists on this one.
0: I think it's a classic Breyer opinion where, you know, he really is trying to find the most workable middle ground. In it, and he very much rejects kind of the black and white approach of if it's a, if it's not directly into a navigable waterway, then the text of the statute forecloses that He doesn't really approach the law quite in that way. And he kind of leaves it up to the courts to, to to kind of develop some of these tests. He says courts will provide additional guidance through decisions in individual cases. So, I mean, it's very possible that this isn't the end of this, you know, legal issue and that these cases will continue to be litigated. And um, and I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, you had Kavanaugh and uh, 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 Roberts on board joining this opinion that maybe had tempered what was originally like a you know a more a broader victory for the environmental
1: groups here okay moving on there was another uh big case that came out uh among the six opinions this week this one came out on monday and arguably i think might be one of the biggest ones to to kind of catch the attention Uh, ramos versus louisiana um dealt with whether state's can have non unanimous jury convictions. So, I think for longtime listeners, you know, you might have heard us talk about this case back in October when we were first having, uh, back when the court first had arguments. Um, so, Evangelista Ramos was convicted of murder in 2016 um, in a Louisiana state court. Now, Louisiana at that time, along with Oregon, um, allowed for the conviction by non-unanimous juries. So he was convicted by 10 out of 12 jurors um, and sentenced to life without parole. At issue was the question of whether the 14th Amendment incorporates the Sixth Amendment's requirement for a unanimous jury to the states. And the court basically said yes.
0: So this was an interesting 6-3 to three decision that featured a pretty rare lineup. So just kind of quickly here, you had Justice Neil Gorsuch um, writing the opinion for the majority saying that, yes, the Sixth Amendment does include a unanimity requirement um, that is incorporated against the states. It's a long way of saying that states can only convict people um, by unanimous juries. Um, so as you said, Natalie, that uh, you know Oregon and Louisiana um, are the pretty much the only two states in the country that this applies to. Louisiana has recently amended its constitution, voters voted to do so, um, to require unanimity now. Uh, but there are still a lot of defendants like Ramos who are serving out their sentences under the old scheme. Um, so the, the implications of this case are, are pretty big. I, I think in the opinion on Monday, um, the court points out that there are, you know, hundreds of cases on direct appeal involving this very um, question that it that it bears on. Uh, but, you know, obviously, I mentioned that it was an interesting breakdown. It's about a paragraph long to go through who joined what parts of each opinion, and it's very lengthy. But basically, the, the overall breakdown is a six to three vote where you have uh, Justice Gorsuch, who writes the majority opinion, um, deciding to say that states must convict people by a unanimous jury. So he's joined in the opinion uh, by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice... Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Brett Kavanaugh. You have Justice uh, Clarence Thomas who writes a separate concurrence and he concurs in the judgment but doesn't actually join Gorsuch's opinion. Uh, and then in dissent, you have an opinion, a dissenting opinion by Justice Samuel Alito, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and, um, interestingly, Elena Kagan.
1: Yes, the breakdown really came down to an issue about precedent, as it normally does <laughs> with this court. Um, but, but, you know, the main opinion written by Justice Gorsuch basically overturned a 1972 case that said the exact opposite of what the the Ramos decision was. Um, so the 1972 case, Apodaca versus Oregon, had, in a very fractured 414 decision, um, basically, you know, said the Sixth Amendment does require unanimous juries, but had not held that the 14th Amendment incorporated that against the states, Um, you know, so it was a contentious issue then. Um, And Justice Gorsuch basically, you know, was like, this is kind of a a weak precedent. Um, And and he laid out the history for having unanimous juries, Um, you know, a very strong, like long history of it. And he noted the racist kind of background to a lot of of these state laws that did allow for non-unanimous juries.
0: Yeah, he really dives into the history here, you know, through the through the English common law up to the founding era and the colonial era in talking about why, you know, unanimity was, in fact, required, unexpected and, and, and kind of covered by when people refer to a right to trial by an impartial jury. And he doesn't really give a whole lot of weight to this 1970 ruling. In fact, he kind of points out that you know, it was understood to cover this um, right to unanimity for so long until in Louisiana and Oregon. You know, in Louisiana, for instance, it was a it was a relic of the restruct- of the Reconstruction era uh, after the Civil War, and I think it was a constitutional convention where they allowed conviction by ten out of twelve uh, jurors. And I think uh, he quotes from uh, you know a committee chairman at the time who said the stated purpose of that constitutional convention was to ensure the, uh, the the supremacy of the white race. And I think he also talks about how in Oregon uh, this scheme can be traced um, to the rise of the, the Ku Klux Klan. So he definitely does not think that this is somehow you know embedded in the the history of, of, of the country this this idea that you can convict people by only 10 out of 12 jurors and so he really discounts um, the amount of time that they've they've spent with these schemes here it actually prompted a pretty strong reaction among the dissent um, Justice Samuel Alito, in his dissent, says that, you know, there's really no reason for this, quote, ad hominem attack, he calls it. And he says, basically, the majority has tarred uh, the states of Louisiana and Oregon with uh, the labels of of being racist, because they've obviously upheld these, um, you know, non-unanimous jury systems for so long. And he says, you know, there's no really good reason for overturning this precedent other than... The fact that you know the majority just wants to do so, um, but I think what really is interesting is that you know, as I mentioned before, Justice Kagan joins this opinion, and I think it's part of a strong pattern that she's shown even this term, where um, she is not willing to go against uh, the precedent of the Supreme Court unless you know, in her eyes, there's like a really strong reason to do so. And apparently she just didn't think that there was one in this case. And I can see her kind of, as I talked about before on a previous episode, her kind of like trying to build a little bit her credibility here and, and really just try and dig down deep um, into strengthening the precedents of the court for maybe a future moment, potentially soon, even this term, when, you know, a, a quote-unquote liberal precedent, maybe Roe versus Wade or something like that, is on the chopping block.
1: Yes, uh... I think we've we've kind of it's been the thread throughout a lot of the the talks we've had. Starry Decisis is just really at the forefront of so many cases this this term. Um, and and you know Justice Brett Kavanaugh he kind of came in <laughs> with a concurrence in the Ramos decision and acknowledged that everyone's kind of at each other's necks and and, and suggested a potential way forward, a, a potential three-part test for deciding whether to overrule precedent. Um, you know, and, and basically, you know, is it not just wrong, but egregiously wrong? Uh, two, is the precedent causing some sort of significant negative jurisprudential or real-world consequence? And finally, he says, you know, the justice as part of like this 3 test, test should examine, you know, reliance interests of the parties before overturning precedent. So he's basically like trying to lay out a way for <laughs> for for everyone to start getting on the same page about right. precedent.
0: Yeah. So this obviously isn't the first time that Justice Kavanaugh has voted um, to overturn a precedent since he's been on the Supreme Court. But I think it's probably the most ink that he's spilled on the subject of precedent so far. And I, I think it's pretty interesting. And I think you're also going to see probably a lot of lawyers that are taking his words to heart so the next time that they are kind of angling for his vote in a case that presents this issue of precedent i think you could probably see them reiterating and explaining why um that precedent does not meet or does meet these three factors rather but i just wanted to say i i I think i see what's going on here in terms of kavanaugh using this case as the time to kind of offer this olive branch if you will about like the way through the um stare decisis model and i think it's because it's 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 it doesn't match up with the familiar pattern that we've seen you know it's it presents kind of an opportunity because you have you know three of the liberal justices and three of the conservative justices kind of joining together and saying yes we want to overturn this bad precedent apodaca and then you have you know uh the two remaining conservatives and one remaining liberal in uh in in alito roberts and kagan saying that no we should really you know, hold fast, and so in kind of a moment where it breaks from that pattern, maybe he sees like a time to kind of reassess and, and rethink these things, but I think it's important to also focus on what he actually admits in his concurrence, which is that this is not a silver bullet for this issue, and that there's still going to be, even assuming that he gets his way, and that this is the way um, that the court should approach these issues, <laughs> there's like a lot of room in between, you know, what constitutes egregiously wrong, um, how do you weigh these reliance issues? It's, it, it so much of it depends, you know, from from just having watched the justices over the years, kind of their ideological leanings coming into the into a case despite what they may say about balancing these, quote unquote, neutral factors.
1: We'll definitely be seeing them continue to grapple with this issue. Um, you know, there's the the June medical, case that's coming up. There is the Title Seven case um, also involving precedent uh, p- or possible precedent overturning.
0: Right, right. I mean, the court also just granted for next term whether to overturn a, a case asking whether to overturn the-, the landmark church-state separation case in employment of Division versus Smith. That dates back to 1990. So yeah, this is just one that's going to keep bubbling up.
1: For today, though, I think that'll just about do it for us for this week. I think we're finally Is caught that up all? <laughs> with the with the big uh, <laughs> with the big uh, highlights from this week, uh, this very busy week. Uh, Jimmy, as always, it's been great chatting uh, all this through with you.
0: Yeah, definitely, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in.
1: We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Chater and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Ben Kochman, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and Ryan Davis. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening.